1: and
0: their essential love of justice.
2: Welcome to the Kudzu Vine for February 24th, 2019. I'm your host, David McLaughlin. Joining me as always, and as like last week, uh, welcome Tim Shiflett.
1: Good evening, sir.
2: Yes, and we are on a little clock. Had some personal things also, uh... For folks that love Hollywood movies, the Oscars are on tonight, and so we might not have gotten a lot of live listens anyway. Um, So we're recording a bit early, but we're excited about that because Eric Benson of Texas Monthly, who also did an outstanding pod series called The Underdog, will be our guest in about 20 minutes. And there are just a ton of other political issues to discuss. And the first one, Tim, I want to talk about was it is that time of year Uh, where people get their taxes together, and um, one thing about this story I think that's interesting is a lot of times a piece of news will come out, and it'll come out from a big news source, or it'll come out from a big government entity like the White House or the Congress, and it'll make news, and it'll trickle down to the people. This story is more of people did their tax returns, And little, um, you know, information was shared here and there. And this story bubbled up from everybody up to the big news sources who have started picking up on it. And what I'm alluding to is this year, people's tax refunds have been smaller, and some people have actually had to pay taxes when they traditionally um, would get a refund. And it's come to quite a shock to people And um, the reason for that was the tax cut, uh, which is kind of complicated to think about. You're supposed to get tax cut. That means less taxes. But apparently, when they wrote this tax law, they knew that um, a lot of just average wage earners, probably the overwhelming majority of people in America – weren't really going to see any boost from this tax cut because it really wasn't targeted towards average people. They wanted to get people on board, so they tried to tell companies,
3: you know, take less
2: withholdings from people. Then it looked like they got more in their check. And now, because they took less, people are getting less on their refunds and even having to pay. And a lot of people aren't really happy because they depend on, that little boost of income in February. Um, Tim, kind of of what have you heard and seen about this?
1: Well, you know, the funny thing, you you said it kind of bubbled up. The first place I ever saw any mention of this at all was on social media, like on Facebook and stuff. People were complaining a little bit about it, and I thought, oh, maybe it's just Facebook. Well, suddenly this thing is really a story now. New IRS data, and they update this weekly, Um, as of the close of business Friday evening, the average refund now is down about 16.7% from the same reporting period a year ago. So people aren't making this up. This is really happening uh that amount on average i it, it, it's about you know for for middle income people we're talking five hundred and twenty nine dollars less than they saw on their refund check uh last year. Well well this has suddenly become obviously very troubling for Trump and for those who voted for this tax plan. Um the data, of course, is for early filers. The very people, mind you, who file early because they expect what? A big refund, right? Uh, and, and they use these refunds to, you know, purchase big ticket items. Maybe they're waiting to get that new washer and dryer. or Maybe they're waiting to pay that down payment on their summer vacation, or maybe a down payment on a car. Maybe they're going to catch up on some bills. Um, Maybe they're going to use this tax return to pay other taxes with it that they owe. Uh, And this has caught some people Uh, flat-footed. You you know, they, they did pay a little less in taxes out of each paycheck. But I I think people kind of thought, well, that's going to be permanent. Uh Uh-uh. What they, they, uh, you know, pay less in, the government gets back at the end. Uh, Thirty million taxpayers, they think, simply didn't make any adjustment and withhold enough to cover the taxes due. So obviously you're going to have to pay for them sometime. And many are finding that they have to pay, and uh, that's going to create a lot of stress and headaches and angry voters. Uh, uh, What it boils down to, David, if you itemize with no dependents, for instance, that's bad news for you. If you um, own a house in a high-tax state, and you're listening to us today, well, we got bad news for you, too. Uh, if you have unreimbursed business expenses, bad news for you, too. All the, the changes were made in the tax code, and you're not going to get that money back. Now, families with children under the age of 17, you'll get some good news in the child uh, credit. Uh, the very rich, of course. I know you're shocked to hear that, David. Hey, they got good news too, as well as corporations. They they got good news too. But right now, the Republicans are really scrambling, trying to figure out a way to explain this to people that people will find palatable. Because you hit them in their pocketbook, uh, they're not going to be happy, right?
2: Yes. Well, Catherine, welcome to the show, and I will tell you, I've got some good news and bad news personally for me. Good news is we did our taxes, and we did get a refund. Bad news is in 2018, I had two teenagers at Murphy's Law living in my house, um, so I could always use a little bit more like I've gotten in previous years because our tax refund was a bit smaller, about 16%, so I'm pretty average. Uh, Catherine, what are your thoughts on the story?
4: Well, you know, I have always thought that um, – now, to be fair, I haven't done my taxes yet, but I've always felt like the my my favorite point is when I don't owe any and I don't get any back because I feel like then, okay, they haven't had my money to use for the year and, um, and I don't have to pay them anymore. So I, I'm not unhappy when I don't get a large refund Uh, it it, to me it's the perfect balance but i know a lot of people who really count on that money for uh you know like 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 uh tim said for all those reasons to but especially um for people who have uh property tax bills i think Mm -hmm. a lot of a lot of people i know Count on that refund to help pay their property taxes on an annual basis, if, especially if they own their property outright and don't have it. Pay, isn't part of their mortgage payment. So, but I, I do think that it, the the I personally believe the best the best situation is when you don't owe and you don't pay, you don't get anything back because then you've gotten all the money that throughout the year. But I know that people are surprised by this, and um, I I. I mean, I guess I knew it was coming because I had been paying attention to what the tax law was and that, you know, I did get a little bump in my um, income, so I knew that that was going to happen, but I'm probably a little more, um, I'm probably a little bit unusual um, because I I am that person who doesn't really want to get a tax refund. I want it all even out, but um, it is, it, it, and, and people are mad, like, some of my coworkers have done their taxes, and they're like, "What? You know, I was gonna, you know, do this, or I was gonna make some improvement in my house, or I was gonna, you know, go on a vacation, or whatever they were gonna do." So, um, I, I a lot of people are surprised, and uh, and and of course, it's terrible that the wealthy and the corporations and the are not not hurting. I mean, of all the all the places where there should be uh, a little pain. They're not getting
2: that, so. <laughs> yeah, Catherine, it's funny you mentioned that. As I've actually heard that said by people, usually they're small government conservatives that you know they don't want the government to have their money. So um, it's uh, different to hear someone that's not a small well, market conservative think that way.
4: My mother was a tax accountant, so she was always like, "Yeah, we should just it should be the best is the one that's even." So. To, and she yeah. was also very liberal and, and didn't want the government to have her money a, any more money than they should have. So, well, say we, we, we this to, though: we all come to these conclusions for a variety of reasons, you know.
2: So, yeah, and, and I, but I will say this is unfortunately
4: the IRS. Amazingly,
2: it, since it's part of you know a government, is a better saver than the average American, and, and that's why uh, sometimes I guess it's important that people get this nice little lump sum because, you know, theoretically, yeah, you could put aside oh, $50 every month and you'd have that amount, but it's more likely that the RS is going to save it for you and you're going to get it in that portion. And it's really interesting Think about how our economy works. You know, we have the holiday season and consumer spending goes up and then everybody buys more than they really need. And then in January consumer spending shrinks really tight and then people in February and March and April begin to get these tax refunds, and then they can spend again. And so I think it kind of helps the consumer economy. And so the consumer oh, economy, man. which already took a hit from the government shutdown, may take a little bit of hit from this. Right, Tim?
1: Right. Uh, you know, I was I was going to uh – mention what a lot of people have been saying to me about this, a, a lot of just average folks that, that have already discovered the bad news. They, they've all asked me the same question. Why didn't someone explain this to me before now? Why why was I not told because the, the tax code was changed, I was paying out less than taxes, that I was going to lose that money at the end of the year. Nobody told me that. No politicians told me that. The IRS didn't make that blanket announcement where I could hear it. Nobody said a word to me. Now, Now, we're talking about people that either use TurboTax, something like that, or they go to somebody and just hand them the stuff, and that person, whoever it is, does their taxes for them. And otherwise... They don't want to hear anything about it except, what am I getting back? Uh, nobody, they, they are all to a person telling me what they are really angry about is nobody told them that this was going to happen so that they could have made any arrangements uh, at their workplaces or whatnot if they wanted to make any arrangements. Nobody told them. I guess they have a point, yeah.
2: Well, I mean, I guess you could say, oh, well, you should understand that you need to take deductions. I know when I first got my uh, job and then got married and, and, and we had to think about things, we actually chose to take more deductions just to kind of make sure we never did owe oh, and then hopefully, you know, did get that bit amount back because uh, if you yeah. don't have it to spend, you won't spend it and you will get that little uh, uh, savings plan, so... Now, that's kinda of how we did it personally so we understood about I guess in our workplaces it was explained by at that time Bartow County Schools. This is how taking deductions affects. You can take a zero or a one. You take a zero, you get more now, you take a one, um, well, or maybe that's opposite, you get more later. Um, well see so, I was
1: married I, I I'm married to a, a bookkeeper and a and a paralegal With a mind like a steel trap for things like this. And many years ago, she sat me down and explained to me the virtues of taking out extra, either in state or, or in federal at the time, and for what reason and what amount we should do to cover things good so that we get that nice refund. But really, does the average person have this advantage? Like I, like, like I said, most of them don't. They, they either, the only time they think about tax time is when it's tax time. And then they do a quick file, or they take it to some person and say, here, do my taxes. And, uh, and that's what they do. I, I, those are the people, a lot of those people voted uh, for the very people that just produced this package. Uh, I yeah. think it's going to be an issue with some legs.
2: Yeah, I mean, this is – and we'll get to the political implications because you talk about the folks that go to the H&R Block or the Jackson-Hewitt in the Walmart. You know, they put up the little fake walls, and um,
4: they do their taxes
2: quickly. They see the signs that pop up in January, uh, get a advance on your tax refund. I mean, those are the people that are really – end up being desperate for this money. Um, but let's talk about the political implications. Uh, Donald Trump, actually, when the shutdown ended, his approval rating ticked up a little bit. I, I, I kind of thought it was kind of strange that it did tick up like it did. I and mean, it wasn't a point or two. I mean it moved a little bit upward. But this is something to me that's going to be a negative and it's not like he needs any more negatives. But but Catherine do you think this is something that not only will take him down but take him down with that core base voter that working class non-college educated um white voter
4: Um I think I think it might for uh temporarily but I think people tend to blame things like this on uh on the IRS and as as this sort of Ghostly organization or ghostly department that you know takes advantage of people, and um, since it wasn't like Tim said, it wasn't part of the messaging around the um the change in taxes, it might be. I can see how he could avoid a lot of criticism about it, and I can see how he could spin it that saying, Well, I didn't know that. You know, I don't know about the IRS or you know whatever, but I do think it could hurt him, uh, at least tem- maybe temporarily, but he he'll figure out a way to spin it, and his people will yeah. always come back to him.
2: Yeah, and Tim even though this you know all of 2018, every bit of it, the Republicans were in control. Um, is there a chance that the Republicans could somehow spin this and say? oh, well, you know, the Democrats take control of the House, and then you don't get your tax refund. I mean, could they really take super naive voters that don't understand that it's all the 2018 tax year and kind of play it against them? Uh,
1: Even even the most naive of voters could see when this tax plan passed. They certainly know that every Democrat out there Uh, voted against it. Uh, They just won't be able to make that stick. If I was running against a member of Congress, I would make this thing a core uh, part of my attack ads and stuff. I, I, I would be saying, and rather indignantly... Uh, They told you you could keep most of your money. What they didn't tell you was that they are going to let you keep a little during the year and then take it all back away from you at tax time, which is exactly what happened. People would understand that. Democratic candidates, if you're listening, use that. You've got a golden issue here because, frankly, they either didn't tell them or they just lied to them outright. So I, yeah, I don't it, think there's any way they could spend this and make this the fault of the Democrats. Well, and
2: even more to the point, it doesn't matter if they give you ten dimes one at a time or a dollar bill. This tax cut was about people in that very top bracket, uh, that
0: wealthiest
2: five percent. Uh, that's where most of it went. It probably went to corporations. It didn't go to, you know, people that have to work that live paycheck. paycheck paycheck, like you know 90% of Americans Um, and so to me that would even be better because either way whether you got the the tax cut and you saw it in the tax refund or you got it paycheck to paycheck it wasn't a big difference maker either way because remember when the tax cut plan even happened people were seeing you know amounts under $20 in their paycheck uh, that they Uh couldn't even hardly afford to out to eat meal at even just a regular um, restaurant. Um, mm. It was just nothing special. I mean, barely even these days probably would have bought fast food. Um, mm-hmm. So so it was kind of a, a lose lose either way because it wasn't that big a right. deal. So yeah. I, I remember that because uh, Paul. It was somebody in Paul Ryan's district uh, put that out against him um, when it was you know put into place. So. We shall see kind of how this thing falls out because there'll be more tax filers between now and mid-April. Well, let me kind of segue to another topic, but I don't know how deep we'll get into it, but we'll go ahead and start looking at it. There are actually three governor's races on the ballot this year in 2019, this November. All three are in the South. Um, Going back to our roots, if you will, as as more of a just talking about the South show, there is, The Louisiana governor's race with an incumbent Democratic governor, John Bel Edwards. There's a Republican incumbent, Matt Bevin, running in Kentucky. And Mississippi is going to be an open seat. Um, And that's where we're going to leave that preview, because now we're going to switch over to our guest. And we're happy to bring on, for the first time, to the Kudzu Vine from Texas Monthly, Mr. Eric Benson. Welcome, Eric.
1: Thanks a lot.
2: Yes. Well, um, Erica, I think when we introduced you early in the show, I said that I had been familiar with your podcast uh, series, The Underdog, and we're going to talk about that in a minute. But in addition to Texas Monthly writing for them, doing The Underdog podcast, just kind of tell our listeners a little bit about your bio and, and particularly in work with politics.
3: Sure. Uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not a, a native Texan. I'm actually was born and raised in New York City uh, and lived there, uh, most of my life until about six years ago, um, when I, I, relocated to Austin. Um, I guess one, one political, uh, note, my, my last job in New York City, uh, when I was a kind of cub reporter researcher at New York Magazine, uh, was researching for the political columnist, Frank Rich, uh, who used to be at the New York Times and, uh, and then switched over to New York Magazine. So he's, uh, he's something of a mentor to me and, and someone I've worked with closely for a number of years. Um, and then got to, got to Texas to the, the wild and woolly politics of, of this place uh, and have, have been covering it and, and spent a lot of time uh, covering Beto O'Rourke and his Senate campaign starting in uh, the summer of 2017. And then I was, I was there on, uh, on election night in El Paso, uh, and then I've been, been watching
2: closely everything that's happened since. Yes, well, um, l- let's kind of uh, get into the actual pod series, and I do think it's a very different format, and I like it. It was almost like a, you, it seemingly it looked like you had a plan when you began it. Um, obviously, the campaign would affect it, but it's not like our show where we do it week to week. Kind of where did the idea come from, and what's the reception been, and just kind of explain to us about the underdog.
3: Sure, yeah, delighted to. Um, the, it was actually an idea that, that I think was dreamed up uh, was dreamed up by Pineapple Street Media, uh, which, is a, which is a company based in Brooklyn, a, a new podcasting company that's been very successful, um, and an editor there named Joel Lovell, who's a, a long time and a very respected magazine editor. And you know they pineapple. It's a, it's a small company, and they like to kind of do podcasts that, that sort of are are innovate. You know, try to innovate the form. You know, as you know, podcasting's kind of pretty pretty new area. So there are there are whole swaths of, of of potential podcasts that, that people have yet to really tackle. And one of those swaths uh, that, that Joel and the people at Pineapple really saw was was a, a kind of on-the-ground campaign reporting podcast. And as they looked at the 2018 races shaping up, this is a conversation that began in, in March 2018. Um, you know, as they looked at the midterm shaping up, they thought, well, the, the Beto O'Rourke-Ted Cruz race was kind of the, the, you know, had the potential to be the most exciting race in the country. And actually, when, you know, I had to come, when I first heard the idea, I, you know, being in Texas and, texas democrats are, are you know kind of pessimistic by temperament after not having won a statewide race in over two decades um so you know i said well know, yeah, i don't you know i don't know if you know maybe you know beto might end up losing by 10 points uh you know this 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 whole thing might be over by the time we start doing the podcast but they were confident it would be a big story and that, that beto was a great character and uh, ted cruz obviously is a, a great character too uh, and, and they were right, and it was obviously a very, very exciting race, and I went into election night genuinely uh, thinking anything could happen.
2: Yes, now let me ask you about that, and, and I th- you kind of alluded to what I, the framework of my question. I remember when Beto O'Rourke first announced, people kind of dismissed his chances, and so, you we're going ahead and with this podcast series. At that point, how much was it about Ted Cruz – it's the star of the thing instead of Beto O'Rourke because now I know people listen to it. It's more likely they're listening for Beto O'Rourke, but the time it started, how much was it about this national figure, uh, Ted Cruz?
3: You know, uh, the, to to be honest, so the the idea for the podcast really was the conversations began in March 2018, and you know, as you're you're absolutely right, when Beto announced at the end of March 2017. You know, he was, he was a very little-known figure nationally. He really wasn't even that well-known in Texas. You know, Texas, the, the person who was kind of supposed to run uh, for Senate in 2018 w- was probably Joaquin Castro, not Beto O'Rourke. Um, but Beto sort of jumped the line um, and, and threw himself into the race. You know, by March 2018, I mean, I had, I had by then written an 8,000-word cover story for Texas Monthly on Beto O'Rourke. Um, you know, he'd been covered in a lot of national media too. So, you know, there, he, he was already becoming a kind of major national figure and this race was attracting a lot of attention. So the idea actually was, was always to have it focus on, on Beto, which is why the, the title was underdog. You know, Ted, Ted Cruz wasn't the underdog, obviously. You know, Beto was. Um, but, we did you know, we did want to talk to Ted Cruz too, and, and we did in the podcast, but – but, yeah, the, 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 the kind of interest, if Ted Cruz, you know, a Republican in Texas winning statewide isn't really a story. It's, you know, it's, it, it's been done, um, you know, I, I, you know d- dozens and, and probably over 100 times in a row uh, since, since 1994. So that, you know, a Democrat threatening uh, that, that Republican string of dominance was a story. So the focus is always going to be on Beto.
2: Yes. Well, I have one more podcast-related questions. Then I'm going to turn over to Tim and Catherine. I may have more other questions, but um, do, do either you or Pineapple Street Media have plans on another um, political series-type podcast like this?
3: You, there, there are there are no plans right now. Um, we, you know, I've. I, I joked in the immediate aftermath of, of the election that we were going to do an underdog too, and, and people uh, people took me a little seriously. You know, I, I'll be honest at that time, those, those few days after, I thought probably the most likely scenario was that Beto was going to um, was going to take some time off and, and probably not gear up for presidential race. So there, you know, I guess I guess one possibility is, is we, we could cover the Democratic uh, presidential race um, in some form. But, um, yeah, we haven't we haven't really gotten there yet as, as far as what we do. But but I think we're I think we're all really happy with the results. Um, it was a bit it was really an experiment. Um, and I think it went really well and got some good attention. So, yeah, I, I think I think we might very well do it. But we've been we've been taking a few months off to, to consider our options like
2: you know, good politicos. Yeah, and I tell you what, it doesn't have to be just about better work. I got you a good scenario. Um I know of a sitting US senator Republican that make quite a villain. He's known to go onto college campuses and knock cell phones out of people's hands, students there um, there's a great hero for the story. She's run before, but she's dynamic. Uh, they gave her a national stage just a few weeks ago, and if she runs for Senate in Georgia, I think you could do one here in Georgia that would be quite fascinating. And you might even get Dollar General to sponsor the thing if you're not too mean to <laughs> Senator Perdue. All right. Uh, Yes. Well, I'm going to pass this thing over to Catherine, then to Tim, and he will come back to me for some non-podcast related questions. Catherine?
4: Hi, Eric. Thanks so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. Um, it's a little unusual for us to be in the afternoon, so I'm not as, always as, as prepared as I usually am. So I apologize for that. But I have been looking at some of your writing and I'm I, there's a, a number of uh, pieces that I thought were really interesting. The one about the Um, school in California was was really quite interesting and so I my question I have a couple of questions but first of all how do you um you have a such a variety of writing how do you decide what you're going to write about
3: yeah I mean the 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 kind of the the quick answer and the and the really the, the best answer I can give is just sort of follow my curiosity um you know for me being a magazine feature writer one of the you know, one of the best parts of it is you can explore kind of all areas of, of society and culture. And, you know, whether that's writing about politics and and doing a deep dive into that or writing about film or the piece you mentioned, you know, writing about a, a, a small, very unique, uh, you know, liberal arts college in the desert in California, um, you know it's it's just it's just wherever your curiosity draws you you can you can go there you know the the other kind of logistical answer is i you know i'm a staff writer at texas monthly so oftentimes uh, an editor will come to me and say hey you know so in the case of meto o'rourke you know hey hey we we really need to do a profile of this guy he's running for senate and he's becoming a big deal we'd like you to do it you know how about that you know so 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 a lot of my a lot of my stories also grow up from other people having ideas and and asking me if I want to do them.
4: Well, they're, they're, they're very interesting. So keep it up. Great work. Um, Thank you. Thank um, you so much. Back to uh, Mr. O'Rourke, who is such the topic of the um, month or year or however, what, how do you think this uh, presidential bid will go? Like, have, have you looked at, I mean, what, every day there's somebody new. And I guess we are, still expecting a couple of uh, at least one big name to join again join the, join the clown car, as we sometimes say, Um, how do you think he will be able to um, uh, move out of the path? Like what's his path to uh, success or is there a path for his success? Is he just, or is his role to make a, Statement about certain issues.
3: You know, l- Lord knows. I mean, ha- you know, how can how can anyone try to predict the primary after the last Republican one? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, I you know, uh, y- like you could you can imagine the scenario where Beto O'Rourke is president of the United States, uh, you know, January twentieth of twenty twenty one, and you can imagine in a, a scenario easily where you know, he's dropped out of the presidential race before Iowa. Um, I don't know. You know, I, I think like, the, I think, I think what, you're, what you're getting at, you know, how does he differentiate himself in this very crowded primary field, um, you know, is, is the big question, and it's the question I had uh, when people first talked about him running for president. It's the question I have today, and I, I don't really have, you know, just kind of watching what he's done in sort of his pre-campaign, assuming he runs. And I think the signs are pretty overwhelming that he's going to. Um, yeah. I, I don't, I don't know how he differentiates himself. He, you know, he, it was very, very easy in a general election for us Senate in Texas to differentiate himself from Ted Cruz. Um, you know, every position that he had was diametrically opposed to Ted Cruz's position. You know, he ran a, a, a national from a, you know, a national democratic platform Um, you know, kind of a really sort of generic national democratic platform. I said on the podcast several times, you know, he could have run the same policy positions in New York or California, um, you know, and, and would have, you know, would have seemed like a natural fit. So how does, how does that sort of those policy positions now go into a democratic primary field? You know, I think one thing he'll really emphasize is the border. You know, he's, he's, you know, he's, he's made that a big part of, He made a big part of his U.S. Senate race. He talks about it all the time. It's a big part of his identity. So I think he'll make – I think the fact that Donald Trump is president and has declared a national emergency to build a border wall um, only helps Beto O'Rourke because he's he's the only border politician who's running for president. Um, Saw, you know, got a campaign email, you know, just a a campaign email blast he sent out to everyone this morning talking about – Uh, you know, the the racial history of El Paso for Black History Month. You know, his answer, kind of the biggest moment, really, of his campaign was that viral video about uh, players kneeling during the NFL anthems, uh, the the national anthem during NFL games. So I think he's going to try to court black voters from a social justice perspective, too. I don't know how that's going to work in a field where there are actually you know powerful black candidates also um but you know i don't know i don't know how people catch fire i I suspect that he has something of a plan but then he also has something of a leap of faith just like his senate campaign was
4: well i think that's good to be to have some kind something prepared but also be you know something in mind but also be prepared for uh you know whatever might happen around you because I, i think that's sometimes where candidates Slip up is they uh, aren't Prepared for the unexpected And he seems to be someone Who is prepared for the unexpected So I think that puts him in pretty Good stead um, Well thank you I'm going to pass it to Tim Now and it may come back around Who knows we, we, we sort of play that by A year but thank you Very much go ahead Tim
1: Great. Thank you. Uh, Good evening Mr. Benson Thank you for being with us today Okay let's set up the Following scenario Beto O'Rourke has announced that he's going to run for president. So, uh, who would that leave in Texas to run against John Cornyn, uh, or is he even vulnerable?
3: Yeah, so this is this is a big a big story, a kind of a, a bubbling below the surface story right now that I, I wrote about a couple weeks ago. That I think will become a big story once Beto declares for president, or I should say, if, but I. I I mean I think it's I think it's over 95%. Um yeah, it's, it's John Cornyn, I think the the perception among people who really know Texas politics is that John Cornyn really is quite vulnerable. Um you know, he uh he's someone who is kind of viewed as an establishment Republican where the Republican base has moved to the right. Um you know, there's a perception that Ted Cruz was vulnerable because a lot of people hate Ted Cruz, which is true. Um, you know, Democrats hate Ted Cruz, but Republicans in Texas really like Ted Cruz. Um, Republicans in Texas are much more lukewarm on John Cornyn. Um, so it, could John Cornyn produce the kind of base turnout that Ted Cruz with with Greg Abbott, you know, with unlimited funds, Governor Greg Abbott, who, who ran and was reelected last term, had you know, is Corning going to be able to turn out Republican voters in 2020? Um, How is he going to deal with Donald Trump on the ticket, given how polarizing Trump is um, and whatever is going to happen over the next two years, which I'm sure we can't even dream about. Uh, And so, yeah, there's, I think there's a real, and, and, and Beto came really close to, to beating Ted Cruz and a lot of democratic candidates statewide did way better than expected. So, Going into 2020, this is the first election in a long time where people are saying from an early point that Democrats actually might have a chance at winning a statewide race. Um, And Beto is probably not going to run. Joaquin Castro probably would be the next choice of most Democrats in Texas appears like he's probably not going to run. He's, he's campaign chairman of his brother's presidential campaign. Um, you know, he's just come into the majority in the Congress for the first time in his career. He's been named, I think, president of the, the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. So there are a lot of reasons for Joaquin not to run, because you in Texas you can't run for Senate and Congress simultaneously. So if Joaquin lost the statewide race against Cornyn, he would, he would not have a job. Um, and, you know, and then after that, it's you know it's really anybody's guess. There there, there were a lot of kind of promising uh, first time candidates who came pretty close to winning House seats last election. You know one of those people could run statewide in Texas. You could you could imagine a scenario where one of the kind of one of the new Congress people who who were just elected. Um, whether it's Colin Allred uh, in Dallas who who knocked off a longtime Republican incumbent or Lizzie Fletcher in Houston or Veronica Escobar in El Paso who took Beto's seat. Um, You know, one of those people could run, but, but in all of those cases, unless you're talking about Beto or Joaquin Castro, or, you know, Mark Cuban wants to get in the race, you're talking about someone who's who's starting from a really, really low name ID, Uh, you know, and that's, and that's going to be a problem. So, so Cornyn is vulnerable if Beto runs. Cornyn might be vulnerable if Joaquin Castro runs. Cornyn's looking a lot better for reelection if someone else runs because they're going to have to. They have a lot of Democratic turnout uh, that you know they have. They have lists of volunteers that Beto will give them, but they're going to have to build up a lot of name ID on their own. They're they're starting from pretty much zero.
1: Mm. Now in the general election, um, we we know that Donald Trump's approval numbers. In Texas are are somewhat underwater. Uh, should Donald Trump be concerned about Texas, or, or is that just a pipe dream for us Democrats to make that a battleground state next year?
3: You know, I I, I don't know. I, I think I think we're gonna. I think we I think it's probably too early to say. Uh, if you have someone, it depends on who he's running against. You know, I I think if if he's running against someone who's really to the left, um, you know, Bernie Sanders wins the Democratic primary, I find it really hard to imagine that Texas is going to be, you know, up for grabs. You know, Texas is, the Texas Democratic Party tends to be a little more conservative than the National Democratic Party. You know, Hillary won the primary here pretty convincingly. Um, If you look at how Texas uh, representatives, the Democratic Texas, Caucus votes in the House. It tends to be a little more conservative than how Democrats vote nationally. So, if it's someone really to the left, I I, I think Trump probably has it pretty easily. Um, you know, if it's if it's Beto or even Julian Castro, or if it's you know if 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 Biden wins it and is is really really running a great campaign, then yeah, I think there's I think there's a possibility that the Democrat will still be the underdog, but they'll have a better chance than anyone since, uh, you know, since maybe certainly, uh, you know, certainly Clinton, um, you know, Mm -hmm. to to, to win and, and maybe better than that. All
1: right. Well, I appreciate that, sir, and I'll throw it back over to David. David?
2: Yes. Um, Eric, one more political question for you, and that was, um, once again, about Beto work. I, I know he's in the top – if he runs, he's in the top shelf of uh, presidential contenders. If, I guess there's about 20, so that puts you in the top five or so. Um, but then I saw something else, that he's the most likely person, according to that analysis, to be chosen to be vice president because they said, honestly – Um, there's a good chance that the uh, presidential nominee won't be a white male. Therefore, you're going to challenge history, but you probably want to not challenge history so much as this person's thinking. Um, Do you think Beto O'Rourke would um, be interested in and uh, would be a likely pick for VP, provided he wasn't the presidential candidate?
3: I think he's. I think he's been asked. I, I could be wrong. I have to check this. I think he's kind of said he he would be open to that. I think he probably would. I mean, you know, like it, it takes it takes a lot of hoots but a run for run for president after you've been a three-term kind of backbench congressman and lost the senate race. It would take a lot of hoots but to to run the presidential campaign, be asked to be vice president, and then turn it down. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm. I think he probably would would accept it as long as it was it was a situation that he thought would, would work. And I I can't imagine any of them wouldn't. Um, Yeah. I, you know, but, but who's a light, I mean, picking vice president is sort of like the the ultimate fool's errand, especially this early, but even really like the day before a vice president gets named. I mean, who, who knows Uh, you, you could, you could certainly see it. it. It's been, it's been a while, I guess, really, really since Gore, the, the, you you had a vice president who was kind of an heir apparent. Um, and and I think if Beto at, I guess he would be uh, 48 when the, when the election happens. Um, yeah. If you had a 48 year old vice president coming in, um, yeah, he'd be 56 when the, if, if you were a two-term president, you know, I, I think it would sort of set up nicely for him then to, to make a presidential run himself eventually. So, yeah, if he if, if he is – if the presidency is something he wants to seek, and I guess we'll find that out soon, then I, I don't see why he wouldn't be a, a vice presidential uh, contender if he if he didn't win the nomination.
2: Yes. Well, Eric, we appreciate you coming on the show, talking about all this different um, topics in your podcast. If folks want to read you either social media or where you can find your um, longer-form writings – uh, where can folks find that?
3: Sure. Thank you. Uh, so, yeah, my, my website is ericbensonwriter.com, uh, and I'm on Twitter at uh, EL Benson. So uh, you can find me those two places.
2: All right. Thanks again for sharing about Texas.
1: Thank hey, you so much. David. Thank you, sir. Sure. Thanks, everyone. Yep.
2: All right. That is Eric Benson of Texas Monthly. Also, if you hadn't listened to his podcast, The Underdog, go on podcast, find that, because it's one of those things that it's not like you had to listen to it while it came out. I mean, it actually tells a story that down the road will be interesting. I think if somebody listened to it in five years, um, they could understand a little bit of historical analysis at that point about how the campaign worked. It'll Hold the test of time Um, Well guys let's get back into Those three governors races And so one open seat In Mississippi The other two have incumbents Of the uh, different parties Tim of those three seats Which one do you find the most intriguing Well I'm
1: going To say Kentucky Because Governor Bevin uh, you know, he won in 2015 with like 52.5 percent or something. Not not a great, huge win for a Republican in that state. Uh, he is uh, controversial, and his numbers, as as we've been talking about a little bit, are are very iffy. Uh, he. He already has at least three primary opponents, by the way. Uh, The Democrats have some strong people jumping into the race. Looks like uh, the Attorney General Andy Beshear uh, is the strongest of them. So for now, I've got to rate that race as a toss-up, whereas in the other two races, I, I, I think we have the race is leaning one way or the other. But Kentucky, I think, of the three, is clearly the most interesting.
2: All right, and Tim, I concur with that analysis. Catherine, what's your thoughts on Kentucky?
4: Oh, I I think it's interesting, but I'm more interested in – I'm always interested in an open race, and uh, Mississippi is just such a strange and um, interesting political – That I'm, I'm, and plus it's it's of my interest to me for a lot of reasons. Um, I'm interested in to see what happens in Mississippi, but I haven't been paying that close attention, so I can't tell you what's happening. (laughs) But I'm looking forward to watching it.
2: I I do know that, that there's a candidate back from you know cycles gone past, and I've you know I've worked in Mississippi politics for. Over a decade, uh, back with Governor Musgrove's last re-election campaign, everybody's always been waiting. When will Jim Hood, popular attorney general, run? And, and Tim, I've heard rumblings that this is the year. A, do you think he runs? And B, if he runs, do you think he can actually be the Democrat that can win statewide? Well,
1: you know, uh, of course, we've talked about Governor Bryant being term-limited, but that doesn't mean the 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 cupboard is bare for Republicans. The lieutenant governor, for one, uh, uh, Jake Reeves, is strongly favored for the Republican nod. He is closely associated with Governor Bryant and is pretty popular in his own right. If Jim Hood is ever gonna run, I would think this would be the year a lot of people think that he is, but even with that, it is Mississippi. It uh I think it would be a close race, but I've still gotta say that uh it leans GOP at this point.
4: Oh just, yes. just right Absolutely.
1: now. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I think it leans GOP and unless you know, Jim Hood is saying, you know, I want to be a lifer in that attorney general's race. And we've had people like that. Tommy Irvin here, agriculture commissioner, long time in Georgia. I mean, he was happy to do that job year in and year out. And if Jim Hood feels that way about attorney general, then I might just stay with what I've got. But um, if he – and it's sexy on politics one, it's saying that he is going to run for attorney – sorry, run for uh, governor. So I guess that's what alluding to is. Now is the time to run for governor. I mean, you're probably not going to get a better um, opportunity right. than this one with an open seat, with a unpopular Republican in the White House. I mean, he's you know Donald Trump's better in Mississippi than he is in Massachusetts, but he's still less popular than say George W. Bush was in 2003. Um, so, so it's it's a better shot there. Um, well, let's let's kind of cover that last race um, quickly. And uh, Louisiana, John Bell Edwards' political upset—that's all about. Sometimes you just got to put your name on the ballot, and things happen. And David Vitter's personal life most definitely happened. Uh, but now he's the incumbent, and I don't think people are gonna, um, you know, vote on you know his Republican opponents' um, personal life. They're gonna vote on how good a job he's done. Um, I haven't heard any controversies. I know at one point the state budget was bad, but then that was probably during the time when everybody's state budget was bad. And they talked about LSU football. Um, Catherine, I get the sense he's not unpopular, so that should be in his favor, even though Louisiana leans Republican.
4: Yeah, I agree. I, I don't. I think he, you know, he's pretty conservative for a um, for a Democrat. So I think that that helps him in a state like Louisiana. So uh recall any big um, you know, public scandalous comments. Some of his some of his standpoints are not what I agree with, but um probably serve him well in um Louisiana.
2: Yes. Tim, your thoughts on uh the Louisiana race.
1: Well, uh you, you know when um uh, Governor uh, Bill Edwards won um, in 2015. Now, he got like a little over 56 percent of the vote. Yeah. It was a surprise win, but that's a big surprise there. That's that's a pretty good, solid win in a state that had been electing Republicans left and right, and it had voted Senator Landrew out and was voting heavily, heavily in— uh, in presidential races for for the Republicans, uh, his race right now, the Cook Political Report has them has that as a lean D and a pretty solid one. I I, I think he 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 his race might be kind of close, but I I, I think he's going to hold. I, I I see no reason, no stain, no scandal, nothing like that. That should drive him from office, plus Democrats are so fired up and enraged that they're going to crawl over broken glass to vote in every last race. I, I say he hopes.
2: Yes. Um, well, let me ask you, uh Arlissa, we've covered these three races, and I'm sure we'll talk more and more about them, particularly as they start to have more contours and we can get an idea of um, – all the candidates in, where the polls uh, that get taken, and who wins primaries where there's some contested primaries. Uh, but let's t- f- talk about our final topic here in Georgia. Uh, Speaker of the House, and, and he's not been Speaker for a long, long time, but he's not needed the job either, um, David Ralston, has come under some controversy. Uh, Tim, I just kind of, I guess I came late to this story or didn't realize it was going to be as big a story until just yesterday uh, when I, you know, brought it to y'all. Kind of fill us in on what's going on.
1: Well, he got in some hot water, uh, you know, because he's he's an attorney, uh, for using something called legislative privilege to delay court cases. It, It basically says that he can write a judge and delay any... Uh, proceeding, pretty much, uh, he can do that with judges, district attorneys, or whatever to lay any court proceeding, uh, citing uh, his work in the legislature, and he can do it year round. It don't have to be when they're in session. Uh, that's bad enough that he had a pile of them of, uh, of cases that it, it was something like the Atlanta paper, I believe, said what fifty seven uh different times he did that in a two year period. Uh to make matters worse, turns out that uh he helped to write this law in two thousand six <laughs> which really gets him in hot water. And so now we've had a group of um a group of uh uh, folks, come forward all on the Republican side. Ten of them to date. Uh, they're signed on, uh, basically to to pass a resolution asking him to step down. Uh, and and that that's basically where we're at. And uh, we'll, I'll say what I think about it in a minute. Catherine, what have you been hearing down there in Atlanta about it?
4: Yeah, you know, I've, I've followed it a little bit all along and then read up a little bit more about it yesterday and today. Um, I uh, I guess I, I'm torn. It seems like a pretty lousy thing to do to string your clients along like this and not get them their day in court. So from a, you know, sort of, you know, non. Uh, like I, I think that's pretty lousy. However, I don't really want to lose David Ralston as the speaker. <laughs> um, you know, I don't agree with him on very many things, but he has been very good about stopping really stupid legislation, um, and and is has no patience for some of this. Uh, you know, sort of outlandish social issue legislation so i i admire and appreciate that part of um his role so um it's but i do think it's lousy for his clients so i'm uh, torn about it i tend to agree with what um stacy abrams said about it um which was we need to trust him to make the he, he's been he's elected he has a responsibility to the um to all of Georgia, as the Speaker of the House and as a member of the state of the um, House of Representatives, but he also has an ob- obligation to his clients and his law practice, and we should trust him to make the proper decisions. But I still think it's healthy yes. what he's done to his clients.
2: Yeah, Tim, this was kind of interesting when, as Catherine mentioned Stacey Abrams. Ten Republicans have lined up against him, and the state's leading Democrat won't speak out against him. Um, uh, What does that kind of mean for his political future?
1: Well, uh, I'm going to be surprised if any attempt to do anything to him goes anywhere in the legislature. It takes a majority to pass any resolution, of course. Right now, every last Democrat in the legislature is staying out of this thing. After all, he's a Republican speaker. Uh, a lot of them, as Catherine mentioned, would like to see him remain this speaker, uh, but, but they want to see what the Republican caucus does about this. Well, with only 10 members signed on to vote for a resolution and all of the party leadership lining up solidly behind the speaker— and the speaker is very powerful. there's a lot of things he can do, especially with committees and stuff like that and uh Before anybody really takes him on hard uh they're they're gonna they're gonna think about it uh the courts are probably not gonna do anything about this either because uh Well, it costs a lot of money to go in uh, and question the constitutionality of of any law, which he is using a law to do this. Uh, Even though it smells to high heaven, it's still a law. And so I don't think they're going to do anything either. We've seen people like Roy Barnes, for instance, write um, letters. Of commendation for him and the main people in the media and stuff that have that have uh squawked about this have actually been uh you know the folks on the right like Eric Ericson and uh and, and some of that crew uh, Neil Borch um I believe was another one um so I don't I don't think anything is 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 is, is going to come of this that that's just my Personal gut feeling on it, something might. But right now, I just don't it kind of remind you of the little flap that come up when Governor Deal first became governor and the property stuff with his daughter and son and all that, and uh, a handful of people was really going out about it, but nothing ever. It just kind of fizzled out. Uh, don't it kind of remind you of that, David?
2: Well, I think that question for Catherine.
4: Huh. Yeah, I, I I agree I think it's it's similar to that And I agree, I don't think anything's going to come of it But it's going to be a little uh, Tempest in a teacup
2: Yep, for the record I did not comment on that uh, Well guys, it's not 8 o'clock like normal It's 3 o'clock So that means our hour <laughs> is up And we had a great show Eric Benson Got some other things covered And until next week, it's been the Cozy Vine
1: Catherine, enjoy the Oscars. I will. Thank you. Good night, guys. Good everybody. We are the heirs of that first revolution.
0: Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world?